Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa's Magazine. Today, we're happy to welcome back to the show Kevin Day, the comedian and podcaster. We're going to mainly talk about British comedy. My original idea for this podcast uh, came last year after the passing of Sean Locke, who Kevin worked with on a number of panel shows, including 8 out of 10 Cats Does Countdown and Have I Got News for You. We're also going to talk about a bunch of the other shows Kevin worked on. We're going to talk about the differences between British comedy and American comedy. And we're going to talk about one show that has managed to succeed in both places, and that's Whose Line Is It Anyway? We're going to talk about the history of that show, Kevin's theory on improv, whether he's good or bad at it, and a bunch of other things. We're also going to talk about podcasting, comedians doing podcasting, and comedians doing football podcasting, of which Kevin follows in all those categories, too. We're also going to have some football chat. Kevin talks about how wonderful his season has been this season under new head coach Patrick Vieira. And then we're also going to talk about some differences between British sports and American sports. I have to put a disclaimer in here that I made a horrible mistake um, in our discussion about college football. I misattributed the Alabama-Auburn tree killer story. I believe it or not, switched the identities of the two places. He was actually an Alabama fan who killed Auburn trees, not the other way around. And I apologize to fans of Alabama and Auburn for that mistake. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Winter Palace. I don't want to say the road to this pod has been bumpy, but it could have easily co-starred Bing Crosby and Bob Hope. I'm happy to welcome back to the pod to talk about football and funny business, and not necessarily in that order, someone who's well-versed in both, my birthday twin, Kevin Day. How are you, Kevin? I'm very well, thank you. Um, Thank you for having me back on. I'm sorry that circumstances conspired for it to take so long. Uh, I, the, I think the sun was shining high in the sky last time we spoke, and we were, uh, it's certainly not now. So, yes, I apologise for that. It's all entirely my fault, but family, COVID, and, and life intervened. That's that's quite all right. I mean, it's um, the, uh, the first thing I'll say now, even though we're doing football later, um, we are recording this during the transfer day deadline mess. So <laughs> if we happen to not mention anything, it's because we didn't know about it. Or it happened after we finished recording, but uh, after the show went up. So, or we may just not get to it. I just wanted to put that disclaimer out there. Um, yeah, so somebody, somebody once described transfer day, deadline day and said, if you want to share all the thrills of what transfer deadline day means, then sit in your canteen at work until a midnight before midnight and then order a pot noodle for £25. So that's essentially what's happening with most clubs. They they can't get what they want on deadline day, so they pay way over the odds for somebody somebody they never wanted in the first place. It's a strange, it's a strange old phenomenon. Transfer deadline day. I was I was listening to Five Live as we were setting everything up, and fortunate we started uh, just before I had to listen to uh, Michael Richards and Chris Sutton uh, talk <laughs> up Frank, our our new manager Frank Lampard, who I'm. 
who I'm not particularly fond of, but I am certainly fond more fond of him than I was the previous manager. But we'll mm-hmm. get to that. We'll get to that in a second uh, later in the show. Yeah, well, uh, I'm also I'm also rather proud that it's because of um, Crystal Palace fans, my club, that Sky no longer have uh, a presenter outside every ground. They used to stand outside the grounds. Uh, and four or five years ago, Palace fans organised themselves and stood behind him with a banner saying that Sky was killing football and pricing football fans out of the game, um, uh, which was enormously funny and very embarrassing for Sky. So they now do their presenting from the safety of the training grounds, which is a bit cowardly. But yeah, it's a, it's a strange day. I'm not sure how it how it equates to the to the draft days in, in NFL. I presume there's a similar sort of manic vibe about it. It's funny because in, I don't know, in the States, it's as strongly, but in Canada, the de- uh-huh. the trade deadline day for hockey is almost as crazy as it is in England for transfer deadline day in terms of budget and overkill. Like, uh-huh. bo- yeah, both of the uh, sports channels in Canada will devote all day to the trade deadline, even though much like the football trading deadline day, almost nothing happens. So you have, you have people who sit around all day just waiting. And of course it's uh, in football, we do seem to get bigger trades occasionally, but in hockey, it's generally a lot of, you know, trading substitutes and Uh, big, big stars never, because the you know again because the contracts are so big and you know and of course it's a lot more complicated in football with countries and now we have FFP and we're about anyway we'll get to football. Uh, yeah yeah um, the reason we had originally talked about doing this was unfortunately it was uh, after Sean Locke died yeah and I went down a rabbit <clears throat> hole of watching uh, a lot of eight out of ten cast this countdown. Which led me to watching eight out of ten cats and going back and watching QI. And I was watching a lot of the British panel shows. Sure. And I thought, hey, I know somebody that, that I've had on the pod before that I'm friends with and that has worked on those shows. Uh-huh. So, um, like you said, it's taken a while because you had family issues and the holidays and things like that. And we originally talked about it uh, right after he passed away, and now sure. it's taken so long. The new season of Cats is actually on the air now. With uh, you know, they're having a series of guest hosts to fill in for him now. Yeah. But I th- I thought who better to talk to about panel shows than you? And I didn't realize until I went went to your IMDb page just how many of them you've actually worked on over the years. Now you still work on how i've got news for you correct even though it's not on the air right now yeah i still do i do have i got news for you and a league of their own which was hosted by james corden until two series ago is now hosted by romish ranganathan um have i got news for you slightly different i it's slightly different to other panel shows but and also have I got news for you? It's one of those shows that doesn't admit it has writers so if you look at the credits at the end of have i got news for you it's, it says program associate rather than writer, even though we only write for the host of the show. Uh, everything else is genuinely spontaneous. Um, but they don't like the idea of people thinking that there is writing going on in the, in the topical news show. But yeah, I worked on I worked on just about every uh, panel show you can name. QI I didn't do uh, for 
because uh, I missed, I couldn't do the first two series, and they they stuck with established writers. But everything else, I've, I worked on eight out of ten cats a lot with Sean. Sean Locke's death uh, hit, hit the comedy circuit very hard. I I compared his first ever open spot at the comedy store, and he was very close to my wife. Sean Sean was quite difficult on panel shows. He was very very good on them, but he demanded very very high standards from guests. And if he thought that those guests weren't living up to those high standards or if they weren't working hard enough or they're just falling back on old material. He wasn't beyond squeezing their leg under the desk very hard. And he used to be a builder. He had a very firm grip. So he had he had very high standards, but he was one of the funniest people I've ever met, Sean. Could be quite stern. I I loved him and he he was very fond of me, but he was he was hilarious and he was some of his moments the only the only and it's a tiny, tiny consolation about his passing was that uh, Channel 4 showed uh, a 10-minute montage, which I believe is available online, like a 10-minute montage of his best bits on various panel shows, and they are just, just hilarious. He, he was he was unusual for a... Uh, he, was, he was a proper hard man. He used to be a builder, but he was unusual for a working-class comic and having quite uh, an obscure sense of humour, if you like, but he was... He made me laugh more than anybody else, but he, he he could be quite daunting to work with on those shows because he say so he set very high standards. Yeah, one of the interesting things about the panel shows, at least the ones from my frame of reference, which is sort of from the mid '90s onwards. Yeah, uh, I think we we may have talked about this last time, but a lot of these shows haven't made it on television here. Like some of them have been adapt. The one there's one obviously glaring exception to that, which is the one I'm going to talk about. But generally speaking, I don't know if it's the British humor or it's, the reference, because like I said, I I did not realize until I was doing my research that they actually had made an American version of how I got news for you that you know didn't go anywhere. Yeah, but it's it, it, every. I think just about every panel show I've worked on, Mark, the most successful ones, have tried an American version, and and none of them have worked. The, the um, uh, <clears throat> never mind the Buzzcocks was a classic example. Uh, they think it's all over as another classic example, and I I think never mind the Buzzcocks was a pop comedy quiz, and they think it's all over was a sport comedy quiz. Both of them quite harsh. I think. The big problem they tried, they both got successfully piloted in the States and both of them were were taken off after two episodes. And I think part of it, it, it's the same reason why roasts don't really work here, which I know we discussed before, because the British sense of humour is such that we low level take the piss out of each other constantly. So when people suddenly turn around in a roast kind of thing, everyone goes, well, hang on, that's a bit harsh. We, we, we know we'd take the piss out of each other. But in the, in the same way, the, the roast thing in America works because you haven't got that that low-level valve. And what happened on both, uh, they think it's all over, and uh, never mind the buzzcocks, is that American audiences, and even the guests on the show, couldn't understand why we were taking the piss out of famous people, which, you know, tall poppy syndrome is very is, is a very British thing. If you, if, you, you know, if you do too much, if you get too successful, you're going to get taken down. And so, for example, in the, in the first show, uh, Never Mind the Buzzcocks in the States, and they, they use uh, American presenters and American guests. They copied a question that we did on the show about Elton John, and the audience couldn't understand why we were, we were taking the piss out of Elton John. They just, you know, because their attitude was like, hang on, this guy's 
successful. He's he's made a lot of money. Why are you taking the piss out of him? So it, it's that more than the the sense of humour because you know the Americans who who took them on board and you know I worked on the American versions of some of them for me and it's it's like they make it into an American show. You hand it over to American writers. It's just the actual concept that American TV audiences seem to struggle with rather than the the sense of humour because it, you know the and the thing is as well that in most of those shows. Even if I got news for you, which is a show that's taken very seriously by the political class, there's no actual questions. Most of those shows are just an excuse. They don't bother giving a score at the end, even. The actual game element of it is disappears. So it's just every round, every question as such is just an excuse to take the piss out of each other and out of the people that that are involved. And we had some huge sporting stars on They Think It's All Over. People like Shane Ward, Jonah Lomu, you know, boxers, you know, Frank Bruno, people who were household names at the time, who were perfectly happy to come on and have the piss taken out. And the people we couldn't get on were American sports stars, made, you know, golfers. They didn't want to come on because they knew what the show about. And also, <clears throat> have I, um, they think it's all over. I look back on some of the jokes we wrote on that show with, I, I, I'm almost, they were very much a product of their time, shall we say, the, the late 90s, early 2000s. We wrote some very harsh jokes. It was a harsh writing environment. And we, for example, we had on this guy, Major James Hewitt, and the only excuse we had had him on as a guest was that he was a polo player. He paid polo for England. That was our reason for having him on. But he had been rumoured in the tabloid press to have had a relationship with Princess Diana. And essentially the whole show was us grilling him about whether he had a relationship with Princess Diana or not. And then it ended with three jokes about Princess Diana, who was still with us at the time, which just you simply wouldn't get broadcast now. We, yeah, Some of the jokes we made, we did one joke about Fatima Whitbread, who was a, she was a huge hero in, in, in England. She she won the Javelin gold medal in uh, 80, ugh, 84. I can't remember which Olympics, but she won the Javelin gold medal. But she was quite, <clears throat> she was quite a masculine looking woman. And one of the jokes we wrote about her was that she failed a drugs test because she couldn't get her cock in the bottle, which is just, at the time, didn't occur to anyone that that wasn't a nice joke. And to her enormous credit, she she complained about the joke, but she said, look, I, I thought it was a funny joke, but the reason I don't, I want you to apologise is because you implied that I failed a drugs test, which we which we happily did and happily donated some money to a charity of her choice. But... <clears throat> they were they were quite harsh, and and that's something else that doesn't really translate to to American TV. It it, it went beyond Mickey taking sometimes on on our shows, and it it could be quite it could be quite cruel. And that's again <clears throat> when you sometimes when you take that element out of a show in order to show it in another country, it loses what makes it, what made it popular in the first place. Yeah, I guess the only show that I could think of off the top of my head, because I don't watch a lot of current television anymore, is I guess politically incorrect would be the closest thing we kind of have to that spirit. But again, sure. that's that's just, you know, a roundtable show. It, you know, there's no quote-unquote panel slash game show element to it. It's just a political yeah. talk show. But with comedians and, the you know, the occasional politician... You know, which, you know, is another thing that, you know, have I got news for you has is that you actually have standing MPs, you know, for yeah. better, for, you know, for better or worse, people, you know, often blame, quote unquote, 
the show for sort of making Boris popular. Yeah, he and, he and his lot gets uh, very cross when that's mentioned. I, I looked after Boris Johnson. He did it twice. Um, and once as a guest and once as a host. And I looked after him in the afternoon on both times. And he was um, quite the character then. But at, at the time, he was he was nobody. He was just this affable buffoon who literally um, would turn up looking like a normal human being, quite smart, uh, no security, and in the afternoon was was you know, friendly enough and approachable. But as as he was introduced onto the show, would would untuck his shirt and ruffle his fingers through his hair to make himself look scruffy, and then would adopt this this baffled, what am I doing here type tone, which the audience absolutely lapped up. But um, we we didn't make him popular. He he's, you know, he became prime minister off the back of a fifteen year campaign of courting politicians and very rich people. Uh, he he won the general election because more people voted for him or voted for his party than than anybody else. But he would have won the general election regardless of whether or not he'd been. Of, on a, have I got news for you? What's what's interesting is the 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 dichotomy, the difference between the way he actually is and the way he presents himself to the public. Jacob Rees-Mogg is another one. Jacob Rees-Mogg, for those of your listeners who don't know him, is almost cliched posh, still wears um, still wears top hats, still wears you know, his, his old-fashioned pinstripe suit that you'd see in 40s and 50s comedy films, has an accent that's almost impossible to decipher. His kids, like his sixth and seventh kids, were named Sixtus and Sextus, and everyone was hoping he'd have an eighth kid, so they'd call it Octopus. But he he came across, he did the show, and was absolutely charming and very polite and very approachable. And that was all a, all a front, because he, his politics, it turned out, at the time he was just a backbench MP, and it turned out when he got into the, the cabinet and then had positions of responsibility, the most odious right-wing politician you could meet. So we we have I got news for you is interesting because we don't give... We're not giving people a platform. We're asking people onto the show that represent different points of view. Um, and some of the MPs are fantastic when they come on the show. Some of the MPs make the mistake of trying to take on Paul and Ian, the, the two guest captains. But it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's a source of irritation that people do think we... We, we reveled in the attention that the show got when Boris Johnson was on it. But at the time, he was literally, as I say, he was nobody. He was just this buffoon. And if you'd said at the time, this man will end up, first of all, as mayor of London, or he'd end up as, as prime minister, you would have everyone would have laughed at you, basically. But he was very good at what he did. He knew what he was doing. And I'm afraid it, he's still getting away with it. There's still some people in our country who, who go, well, we had some parties, so what? Who wouldn't do that? So, you know, he's just a bloke. He's just a lad. He's just this, that, and the other. And certainly at the time, our audience lapped him up. Our audience didn't care what his views were. They just saw this amiable, posh chap t- taking the piss out of himself. But So, yes, we did give him a platform, but it wasn't us that introduced him to the world. So, um, yes, that's the answer to a question I can't remember you asking now. Yeah, um... The one show that I was going to mention that uh, is, I guess, you know, is debatable whether or not falls in the panel show format uh, is the one that did translate here. And since you mentioned Paul Merton, it's Whose Line? Yeah. Which, which, you know, which we started getting over here when I was in college in like the early 90s. Yeah. And, you know, and so it became a hit 
there it ran, ran a long time on Comedy Central, you know, and then got, you know, and then once, um, you know, once Drew Carey got involved, you know, it became this huge American hit. But again, that's, you know, and and I know you are not the, the greatest fan of improv comedy, but that's the show that, you know, translated most over here because you know, one, the talented people that were on it, and two, it was a more universal format. Sure, yeah, the reason, uh, and we have explained this to, for people who didn't listen to the first, the reason I'm not a huge fan of improv is that I'm not very good at it, basically. I've I've tried it. Uh, I did, the only improv I really enjoyed, I did Deborah Francis White's improv, but that's designed for stand-ups. We were basically a stand-up will stand on stage for an hour answering questions that you get from her or from the audience, but in a particular character. So she'll give you a character and you kind of all stand up is, is improv to, to an extent. So I enjoyed that. But when I've tried traditional improv, like whose line is it anyway? I, I struggled. That's the reason I don't like it. <clears throat> I always thought when improv first took off here um, through that show that I always assumed that it was an American show that, that had come here rather than the other way around. And what's interesting about it is that the guy who produced it is one of the few producers I don't really it's not we don't get on we just don't have a meeting of minds about how to make things work and because his approach to improv was that you would you would try something and if it didn't work you would regroup and go back and try it again whereas that's for me that's not how you do improv if it doesn't work you move on to something else essentially but I think the reason it's so successful in America is because you've you've got a much deeper tradition of improv so many of your brilliant stand-ups came out of of improvisational groups famous improv groups as well and some not so famous where whereas here even when that show was really really popular improv as a live uh, art form didn't really take off you had paul merton's regular sunday night show at the comedy store which was always popular and you'd have some improv shows at edinburgh but it didn't really become a huge phenomenon here and that's because there was no there was no real foundation for it. We didn't have an improv group in every town and city like you had in the States. And our stand-ups, for the most part, didn't come from uh, improv backgrounds. We had a couple of double acts who came from improv backgrounds who, who did improv shows, but most of our stand-ups came from a completely different background and were quite strict. I always describe myself as being quite Puritan about stand-up. I... I never particularly like musical comedy acts. I, you know, for me, comedy is one person and, and one microphone. So in, improv, I mean, improv is great. I love I, I, it's when it works, it, it's brilliant. But my my problem with it is when you don't show it not working. Because I think, I think to appreciate the really good bits of improv, audiences need to see when it doesn't work. Because I think sometimes audiences, you know, they'll see a show on TV and they'll go, this is fantastic. And then they go to a live show and they're somewhat taken aback when not everything has the hit rate that the, the TV show does. And that's because in, in Britain in particular, the TV show is is edited to the last minute. So there's no, you know, all the pauses and take, you don't see anybody thinking. What you just see is assured and confident people apparently having ideas within a, a millisecond because, you know, the, the director, the producer and the editor have taken out the 15 seconds of thinking time before it before it happens whereas i prefer to see that 15 seconds of thinking time i like to see a, an act i like to see the process it's the same with a with a stand-up when a stand-up is working i love watching stand-ups do new material 
because I like to see the process. I like to see them thinking about it, working it out as they go along. Uh, I'm less interested in it once you know. Once you see a comic doing that routine for the fifth or sixth time, I'm really not interested. But when it's when it's fresh and new, and when and when you can tell as a professional that they're still searching for the best way to do it properly, then that's when I find it interesting. It's the same with it's the same with improv, and for me, it makes it better when I see improv, which I I will do on rare occasions, normally in Edinburgh. I like that seven or eight seconds, and for me, it makes that. When they do come up with an idea, it makes it all the more impressive because you think, well, they've come up with that in seven seconds. That's brilliant. That's It's no less funny for the fact it took seven seconds rather than the one second it takes on TV. Yeah, I think we may have mentioned this last time. I briefly tried it in college yeah. and I think it lasted about three weeks. When I when it was just sort of, I also realized it wasn't my, it's not that I wasn't necessarily good or bad at it. It just wasn't my personality. Yeah, sure, I understand. Well, also in, in American improv as well, uh, and I've spoken to quite a few American comics and improvisers about this. It's like initially a lot of their warm-ups, for example, that they will do in the afternoons, like they they will rehearse stuff, but they're quite serious, actually style improv things that aren't funny. And And British improv groups don't do that. They don't put that level of training and expertise into it. And you, you'll see... Yeah, British theatre companies use improv as a, as a rehearsal tool, but you won't see British improvisers getting together in the afternoon to to sort of exercise, if you like, their their improvisational skills. Whereas Americans, because they take it so seriously and because they put that groundwork in of doing sort of serious, actually type uh, warm up exercises before they perform. That's another reason why they're probably better at it than the, or rather there's more of them doing it as well. Because what happens in America is you get actors and stand-ups doing it. Whereas in in British improv, everyone performing British improv is from a stand-up background or from a comedy background rather than a performing background, rather than an, an acting background. So it's much more of um, a craft in America. But I, I agree with you. So like, I, I think I probably could have become good at it because, like I say, on stage... I'm very good at improvising. It's like on stage, if I'm doing a gig and, and 10 minutes in, I'll think I haven't actually said anything yet that I was meant to say in in the you know, the, the material I worked out because you're just talking to the audience or, or you're dealing with something. Or sometimes you'll hear a news story that happens on your way to the to the gig and you'll start off with that just to see where it goes. And as far as I'm concerned, that's that's improv as well. But it's just it's just in a different way. But also the other thing with with improv is you do have to be quite quite generous and perhaps if i tried it before i was an established stand-up i might have found it more enjoyable because i didn't like anybody else getting the laugh that used to it used to really annoy me because you you think hang on a second i worked i worked really hard to set you up for that now you jumped in and and did what i was going to say because that's what the experienced improvisers do and it's uh, yeah i found it a frustrating experience i don't dislike improv i, I, I don't dislike any art form but sometimes you just have to go well as you say it doesn't it doesn't suit my my personality as as it happens yeah that was the thing it was like i was in college and i did that and i realized it wasn't for me i was initially you know as a freshman you know as a first year i did some sports stuff on the radio and then realized it wasn't for me and then ended up you know working for the newspaper which was much more in my skill set yeah so it's just, you know, it's just one of those things. 
Well, the other thing I found about improv as well is that you're, when I first did it, and part of the problem as well is I got thrown in at a deep end. I ended up, my first improv experience was with the comedy store players. So I did it three Sundays running because uh, for some reason they thought I had improv in me. So, But I found it, there was one particular chap, Lee Corns uh, in particular, who was great but he was from a stand-up back and he was he just used to make me laugh so much but he would do it by breaking all the rules because you know they they sit you down and they say look you have to accept every suggestion you can't say we're not taking that you can't block you can't say no you can't change the scenario and he would do all that he would do all that sort of stuff and that used to make me laugh much more than the the you know there was i remember in particular the first one i did um the, the setting the scene was the the titanic uh, and all the other improvisers started uh, swaying as though they're on the deck of a ship. And Lee just got on stage and said, what are you doing? What are you... And, and they said, we're on, we're on the, board the Titanic. And he did this brilliant panic thing. Like, I tried to empty the venue going, shit, we're going to sink. And like that, they're all going, Lee, stop it. You're breaking the rules. And I, for me, that was much funnier, to be perfectly honest. And so as a, I was always looking for the mischief in it. And there was no mischief to be had a lot of the time. But it, it can be brilliant. It's, it's, again, it can be brilliant. But it's like... It's like dance. There's some like I love Matthew Bourne, for example. I can't stand traditional ballet. It's it's just as, as simple as that. But and yeah, it's, it's the same with improv. I will I'll happily acknowledge that it's very good, but it's just not. It's not for me. No, that's something that I used to love on Whose Line. Is there are certain people on that show who definitely delighted in either sort of going coloring outside the boxes. Yeah. Or just breaking people, you know, Merton is is great at that, and Slattery was great at that. Yeah, Slattery was brilliant. So, I mean, Paul's main aim in life was to make the other improvisers laugh. I mean, Paul, Paul's brilliant. I mean, Paul has this inbuilt advantage in that he's Paul Merton, and that most of the audience are, are there to see him. So he knows, A, they assume whatever he says is funny anyway, which is a great thing to have, but also he's got that enormous confidence that he, he knows exactly what he's doing. And if something doesn't get a laugh, he will acknowledge it or he'll throw in an old joke. And he he's so comfortable doing it. He's so happy in that environment. And he, you know, he's they all defer to him to an extent. But Tony, Tony, God rest him. I mean, Tony was hilarious. I mean, but Tony was like Lee Corns, but Tony was the one who wanted to, he was like Loki. You know what I mean? He was the mischievous little sprite who was very, very good at it and could do it seriously if he had to, but also also liked doing the sending it up and take and if anybody took it too seriously he'd be the one to pull the rug from under their feet yeah there's a funny thing i was listening to a podcast uh, a bridge podcast from a while ago and one of the things that somebody asked it was like a q a podcast yeah and somebody said the question was what is paul morton looking at when <laughs> he does that shit and it's like the whole thing it's you get a second you know he, you know, it's a second laugh. Yeah, you know, and he and he's just brilliant at at you know knowing what to do exactly on that show to for maximum effectiveness. It, he is, and it, it, I'm not suggesting for a moment that it's not all spontaneous improvisation because it is. But at the same time, Paul's got a lifetime's experience, so he's got a kind of mental rolodex in his head. So there are very few situations that come up in a, in an improv situation now that he hasn't seen before, if you like. And so that's a good shortcut as well. And there are, there are quite a few stock 
reactions to to certain scenarios that he won't do initially but if if what they're trying isn't working he will fall back on on those but again he's got he's got many many different it's an unfortunate analogy but he's got many different weapons in his armory you know he's got he's got many things he can he can pull out and it's it's again what he does brilliantly on have i got news for you is is on photographs that will be shown to illustrate a particular story his first laugh will nearly always be on a reaction to the photograph now i know that he hasn't seen that photograph before because despite what a lot of people think about have i got news for you neither paul nor ian are told beforehand what the stories are going to be they're not shown uh any of the, the photos that will come up they're not warned of any of the missing words if you've got a new guest on the show they might get some some indication just so they're not floundering they can prepare something but paul and ian go into that show those recordings um completely unprepared uh, ian's not unprepared of course because he's got an encyclopedic knowledgeable brain about modern politics and the personalities and paul's not unprepared because he's a brilliant comedian but he's not he's not given notice of what he's going to be seeing so i know that he's seeing those photographs for the first time and his initial response is always a, an improvised reaction to the photograph uh, and again he has the confidence to be able to do that because he knows if it doesn't get a laugh in the studio he can get another laugh by pointing out that it didn't get a laugh in the studio and it's the audience it's full and he knows that it won't get broadcast so again that that confidence all comes from experience and, and from having been in that improvised situation before and also that's one of the problems with when you start improvising when you're new it's like I, I was sitting there in the first couple of shows having loads of ideas but thinking I don't know if this is a good enough idea when you're not meant to do that you're meant to just go on stage and see what happens and it's the same when you're if you're a guest on have I got news for you and you have an idea and it's your first time on a show it takes quite a brave comedian or politician to actually just open their mouth and see what happens because if if nothing happens it's going to affect your confidence for the rest of the show and the audience are going to think you're not funny and by the time a new comic has had that thought process paul has got in there with a joke that might not have been as funny as what you were going to say but gets a laugh and everyone goes oh paul's brilliant but um and they think that because for the most part he is but you know it's paul improvising on the vogue got news views the same as any improv show when it works it's brilliant when it doesn't it doesn't get shown that's fine now, am I correct that you've only done the show once as the actual as an actual guest? I did the show as a guest in the very early days. I was all right on it. I didn't do too badly. Yeah, uh, I looked. It was funny just because I watched part of it, and my first thought was, "Boy, everybody is young." Admittedly, it's 1991, yeah. so everyone should be young. But it was just like. Wow, everybody's young in this. Yeah, it it, it took me a while. It, the, the show hadn't become the icon that it that it is now back then. Uh, it, but even so, there's still an element of nerves about it. I hadn't done much TV. It took me a while to get to the pace of the show, and it's again, it's that that experience of wow. Um, by the time you've worked out what's going on, it's half over. So I was much better in the second part than I was in the first part. But it was it was it was fine. I enjoyed it. Uh, I was asked back to do it and couldn't do the dates. And then what then happened was when I was asked to do it again, I'd already started writing on that show and other shows. And I didn't, I didn't want to jeopardize my writing 
position. This might sound odd. I didn't want to jeopardise the writing on the show by having a bad show, which is not a lack of confidence. I just thought you you don't get paid particularly much as a guest on that show. And if I have a terrible show, I could potentially be losing a really regular job here. So I kind of went for the cautious option and decided not to do it because one of the reasons I ended up writing for years and the first writing job I did properly was on uh, they think it's all over and Harry Thompson God rest his soul who is the producer who's still the best TV producer I've ever worked with he he asked me for for two years he he would see me at gigs he would see me at festivals he would see me in bars he would see me we'd get drunk in different and every time I saw him he'd say will you come and write on on they think it's all over and I went no I, I'm not going to do that Harry because and the reason was I I thought as a stand-up I thought I had too much integrity that so I didn't want to be writing somebody else's jokes I didn't want to be responsible for somebody else getting laughs I didn't want to go into a writing room which was known as as very macho and very brutal I didn't want to sorry hang on a second um uh I, basically I just thought I was too pure as a stand-up to to dilute my skills by by doing that and eventually he told me how much you got paid a day for doing it and to my i said harry why didn't you tell me that two years ago because it's you writers in in this country don't have anywhere near the same status as writers in america do and we don't get paid as much but you you, you get paid you it, it takes a lot of gigs to earn as much as you can earn one day's writing essentially uh, and that's the reason I became a writer, and that's the reason I didn't want to jeopardise twenty days of that a year by having one bad gig on Have I Got News for You. Mark, can I just uh, return this phone call? Do you mind? Yes, yeah, fine. Sorry, mate. It's some. It's hang on. Sorry about that, Mark. That's fine. All done. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, yes. So, um, yes. Yeah, so, have I got, and it was strange because also the other guest on Have I Got News for You was Edwina Curry, who was a Tory MP who uh, slightly right wing then is very right wing now. She's very, very pro Brexit. Uh, but it wasn't long after that that she got caught up in a scandal with um, uh, a very senior politician but she was very strange and very flirty for her. it was all it was a really good spirit I've done I have appeared on quite a few shows like that but I, I'm actually happier writing on them than being asked to do them to be perfectly honest and obviously the older you get the less likely you are to be asked to do them such is the nature of, of uh, British comedy at the moment which I'm I'm quite happy about I really enjoy writing on the shows and as much as I enjoy the writing on them, um, I enjoy the actual studio day more because it tends to be more creative. I still get frustrated, I have to say, by the writing process. It's still, on Have I Got News For You, it's still very labour-intensive. I mean, for every for every joke that's broadcast, there are probably 50 jokes written. Um, and whilst I love the actual creative process, I love working with the other writers you, you you still want to write jokes that get broadcast essentially and that's why i still do 
live stand-up and I still love live stand-up because it's one place where I can guarantee that jokes that I write can get will get heard by the public is it I mean so whilst I love writing on those shows it's still there still is an air of frustration about it that you, you know you're part of the creative process but you're not really making creative decisions when push comes to shove the other interesting thing that I was going to to ask you about is here generally if we if we talk about game show we talk about american game shows versus sure. british um historically you know they were always daytime and very uh all ages you know what i mean yeah. whether it was yeah. match i mean match game was you know certainly uh dwelt in innuendo but like, you know, Hollywood squares or those traditional, the ones that you think of as uh, famous game shows. Yeah. You know, are generally all ages. But the British shows, I don't know what, I assume they're late-ish time slots because they're very blue and very, which is part of their appeal. But I think yeah, that's, I, a, that's, a, that's an interesting difference between the, the, the two cultures of those kind yeah. of shows. They they can I'm not sure necessarily if they, they they can be very harsh they can be very critical, yeah there is an element of blue I mean British people love uh, I was going to say they love innuendo but they love full on sex shows the the game show thing is really interesting because as a kid when you grow up watching classic game shows and I I was very proud of the fact that I became friends with Bob Monkhouse who seemed to present just about every second game show that was on but you watch all these game shows as a kid and they're all very much family oriented. And it comes as a surprise to learn as you get older and as you work in the industry that, that virtually all of them weren't our formats. You, it doesn't occur to you that these weren't shows that were invented here. And a lot of them were, of course, American shows. We had Hollywood Squares. It was called Celebrity Squares. Uh, for some reason, Holland, the Netherlands, seems to be a real hotbed of game show development. So quite a lot of our game shows uh, were developed from Dutch shows. And what happened with English game shows, which were very different to yours, because the prizes on your game shows were so much better than on on ours. So, for example, we had the Generation Game, which is a classic British TV show, first hosted by Bruce Forsyth, then by Larry Grayson, and then, unfortunately, by Jim Davidson. But classic tea time television where designed for the whole family to watch. And, and even there, you'd have a couple of nudge, nudge, wink, wink, uh, jokes, carry-on film-type jokes. But the prizes are so poor that they, they almost become part of the fabric of the show. That, you know, you, you, you could win a teddy bear or you could win, if you want a dishwasher, you were, there was one game show where you could win a speedboat and it, it was a game show based on a game of darts. And there's, there's a famous show where a couple who lived in a, a, a block of flats in Rotherham won the speedboat. And it's like... <laughs> what is literally what are they going to do it but so there was no there was no jeopardy involved there was no real so the, no one ever really took them seriously as the took the question seriously as such it was always they were always more of a vehicle for the host to be funny and they've they've kind of fallen out of favor now you there are very few new shows now there's still a couple of of shows that have been reinvented catchphrase for example which is all based which so you'll see uh, an older couple taking part as well as a younger couple. Most game shows that are on now exist only in a celebrity version. It's just celebrities taking part. Um, 
and they've sort of fallen out of favour completely. And I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because panel shows are much easier to make. But what you'd never see on on a panel show, you'll never see an older an older face in the audience or on the panel. They have, as you say, become uh, almost a no go area for older older performers. Uh, and they are there's a, there's a certain element of the boring in there. There's a certain element of the. It comes right back to what we talked about about Sean Long. It's that you. You've got to keep. You've got to look after yourself. You have to have sharp elbows to get in. To get in, you know, to get screen time, to get on camera. Uh, they're they're not designed to help new comics either. They're just. But yeah, they they are robust. I think is is the phrase that they would use. There is a, a certain robust. And of course, also what what you have on on shows like that is like you know Jimmy Carr will host a show, and it will be people who go, wow, he's been really rude to Romish. But we have a much smaller gene pool of comedians in this country we all know each other and it's like i know all the younger comics coming through because my son is a younger comic he's a very good comic but we all know each other or we know of each other and yeah you have a generation of comics that of course take the piss out of each other because they've been working together for 10 years so what can seem harsh to outsiders is perfectly is perfectly natural for us and again that i hate the word banter and and I think, thank God, banter comedy is is, is falling out of favour here. But that's not something that you you really have as a concept in the states, except as I say, in the form of of a roast, um, which again, as I say, doesn't work here because we take the piss out of each other all the time. We don't need a formal setting in which to do it. But I think one. I think we may have talked about this last time that it is funny that when you watch a certain certain of these shows, you know, you become familiar with. I mean, for, you know, again, for, this is me watching from America, so I don't necessarily see everything everyone does. But you know, if you watch QI or News and yeah. Cats, then you see. Jimmy Carr and John Richardson and Sean Locke and Lee Mack and Victoria Mitchell. You yeah. know, you see, you know, you get to know people because you've seen them on so many different shows. And then sometimes they're a guest, sometimes they're the captain, sometimes they're the host. So you get to see them in like a number of permutations too, which I think is also interesting. It, it is interesting. I mean, it, it's reached a stage where if you watch a show, a new show, not just a game show or a panel show. If you watch any new comedy show on TV and it hasn't got Romish Ranganathan or, or Catherine Ryan in it, you wonder what's gone wrong. You think, are they ill? Because they're in every show. There are there are probably a core group of 15 stand-ups that are form the basis of every single show on British comedy at the moment. And that's a strength in some ways, but it's also a weakness. It's also it's a frustration for younger comics, but what happens is that the uh, TV producers, TV channels, uh, casting directors uh, are innately conservative. Uh, if something or someone works, if someone gives you, it's like a footballer. If you're if you're a midfield player who gives a seven out of ten, eight out of ten performance every time, then you're going to get asked onto those shows every time. If you're a Johnny Vegas who will potentially give you a 10 out of 10 or even better but could also crash and burn you're not going to ask him so you ask reliable performers professional performers who will have their own writers again that's something in british comedy that 
British comedians don't like to acknowledge in America, there's a tradition of, of talking about the writers. You know, Bob Hope and Jack Benny used to talk about their writers on stage. You know, Larry David, for example, was a whole brilliant TV series based on the writer. Whereas here, the notion's always been that stand-ups don't have writers. So stand-ups don't refer to the writers. But all those stand-ups who do those TV shows will have a friend or another comic or somebody like me who will who will look at stuff for them, who will edit stuff for them, who will suggest stuff for them. So people who run the shows know that what they're getting are reliable, professional performers. Now, where that gets frustrating is for people like my son, who doesn't particularly want to do those shows, but would be good on them and would like to do them because as a one-off, they now pay really decent money for a guest. So there's a whole generation of fantastic comics that I go and see perform live that aren't getting asked to do these things because you know they might take a chance with one or two a year but if they know that that Ramesh or, or Jimmy or John Richardson or Josh Widdicombe you know all those Catherine Bohoy if they know that those people will give them a good reliable performance and that they're the people they ask to do the shows essentially and that there has there will come a time when change needs to be managed and it's like because for audiences you know I love uh, working on League of Their Own, for example. But sometimes if I see a show on TV, if I, if, even if I'm watching one of the new series, it's only because it's got 16 written on the studio floor that I know it's a new show and not one that we did five or six years ago because it, it's very difficult. You know, the guests tend to be the same guests uh, and the, the format is, is very similar. So in the end, you need... Things need to change. And sometimes what happened with Nevermind the Buzzcocks, a show I worked on, they tried to change too much too quickly and it was a disaster and it was taken off and it's it's only just come back on on Sky as, as a fairly pale shadow of itself. But you do need to freshen things up. And it's, you know, I, I talk to people, you know, and it's all anecdotal, but I'll talk to people, my mates in a pub before a Palace game, and they'll go, cheers, I'm just fed up with seeing so-and-so or so-and-so isn't there anybody new out there you know and it's yeah and also there were i don't blame the performers because of course they're doing it because they know there's going to come a time when they don't get asked and also as well they're right to point out that it might seem like they're on every night but some of these things were recorded a year ago so they they might currently be doing no work at all when it looks like they're on tv every night but we're we're not very good in this country at reaching out And, and what we tend to do with new talent is to ghettoize it it's like they'll find new comics and they'll go, right, well, let's, let's have a, a young Asian sketch show or let's have a young Afro-Caribbean sketch show or let's have a young gay sketch show. They won't, instead of incorporating new performers, new acts into mainstream shows, they'll find non-mainstream ways of getting, and they'll say, look, we're introducing these new, new talent. He'll say, well, you're not because you're introducing them on, on channels that very few people watch at a time when very few people watch it as well. So, it's we, we aren't very good at integ- integrating new talent. We also have to say, as an older writer, and I, I proud pride myself on on being a mentor and encouraging newer writers. We're not very good at, at integrating new writers in, into shows, and part of me is pleased about that because the last thing I want is more competition for for a job that I've done for for quite some time. But you have to get new people in. You have to get new angles new ideas because otherwise you 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 cut the, the tree off at the root you know if you if 
if the roots are not growing, if young people are going, well, I don't, why do I want to write on that show? Because they're all dinosaurs. They're, they're all they're all old fashioned, old fashioned ideas. Then they're not going to, and eventually those shows will stop because there's no new talent to replace people like me. You know, I can't, I can't as much as I'd like to think I could. You can't do it forever. It'd be grotesque to still be doing it in ten years' time. And unless you're encouraging the new talent to come through and write on those shows, those shows will will disappear. Well, I know one thing a few years ago, I don't remember how many now, was was is sort of that issue of diversity when I know at least the producers of QI said, you know, we're going to have at least one woman on every show. You know, we won't have four yeah. white guys anymore. Yeah, and I yeah, think yeah. this must have been when, when Stephen was still the host because, you know, it's sort of skewed now that Sandy's there. But, you know, certainly when you watch these shows over time, you see more women, more people of color. Um, now you, you know, I'm, I know on on Countdown we've seen uh, whatever the, the correct term nowadays is for disabled comedians have been on. Yeah, like Rosie you know? Jones, James Brilliant. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so there's there's also that factor, too, that you know ends up circulating more although then again if you become pigeonholed as you know the quote-unquote you know handicapped comic then you know you become a box ticker and not you know but so you got you know there's that balance that you have to walk well that that's you've put your finger on part of the problem there is that uh, it's a huge issue in, in in british tv of course it is and I, I get very impatient with people who go, oh, there's too many blackface, not reflect, you know, there's an, an argument going on that, you know, some uh, soap operas uh, uh, are now over-representing black and Asian people, which is just ludicrous. Um, but what happens is, uh, and it's good for, for Rosie Jones, it's good for Romish, it's good for Nish, because TV companies, production companies, uh, TV channels will say, look, here we are, we're having lots of, of Asian comics on, but you're not, you're having... An Asian comic on a lot of times. Uh, so you'll see a lot of Nish Kumar, you'll see a lot of Ramesh Ranganathan. If you want to see other younger Asian comics, you'll have to find, you'll need to look on YouTube channels, basically. You'll need to look elsewhere. BBC Three's coming back, that that might help. It's the same, you know, it, as I said, the innate conservatism, people will say, well, you know, we need to uh, reflect the fact, we need to get more disabled people and tell you, well, let's give Roger Jones a call. And because she's brilliant and she's fantastic, but again, there are lots of other comics out there with with issues that aren't getting represented, that aren't getting onto TV. The, you know, have I got news for you? To their enormous credit, before the BBC said it was actually have I got news for you with the first show, the production company Hattrick said we need to get more people. We need to reflect the growing diversity in in, in the nation, and uh, so we need to make sure there's at least one woman on every show. Uh, we need to make sure that there's a woman hosting every show but again you know joe brand and victoria Cronsmith, victoria Cronsmith, mitchell make upon are very very good so they're the ones that are always asked first so they get a lot of work but there are hundreds of fantastic films there's the, the stand-up scene now is so much more representative of our country than it was when i when i first started doing comedy it's fantastic to see so many comedians from so many different backgrounds and that includes class as well that includes working classes that's always been my issue um one of the issues i had with with hattrick who make have i got news for you they were developing a project with uh, with phil wang uh 
uh, Phil Wang is hilarious. Uh, and they was they were saying how how brilliant it is that we're having we're developing stuff with Phil Wang because he represents a different part of Asia. He represents Southeast Asia. It's good to see Southeast Asia represented on on TV. And, he, and absolutely, yes, of course it is. But Phil Wang was also the chairman of Footlights. Phil Wang is from a very middle class background, so it's like you know he, he's one good thing, but also he's another not good thing because it's very difficult for working class people to get in, into TV to get represented, and and also what you'll find is a, is an issue that causes me some distress is that quite rightly on screen. So you know I do a lot of sports broadcasting as you know, and and I will watch BT Sport, I will watch Sky Sports, I will watch football games, I will watch cricket matches. And quite rightly, on camera, so many of the presenters now are black or Asian or female or openly, and, and that's brilliant. But go behind the camera, you won't see, you, you'll see very few black, you'll see very few black and Asian producers, you'll see very few women producers still. 90% of the, of the camera crew and the technicians will still be, will still be men and most of them will be, will be white men. So there's still, there's still a long way to go before <clears throat> British TV fully represents the diversity of the nation that we are. And it's brilliant that on the screen talent is changing, but it's still it, it's still a relatively few people that are representing a huge amount of people. So it, it's you know if I was a Felix, uh, there was a stage Felix Dexter, God rest his soul very funny afro-caribbean comic that him and lenny henry used to joke that felix used to say i'm gonna I'll, I'll have to kill lenny henry before i get on tv because lenny is the black comedian as simple as that and that's still the case there's still so many brilliant young black asian comics who ain't going to get near tv because tv have got their young black asian comics already thank you very much we've got mo gilligan we've got romish ranganathan that's that's fine we could hold our head up high we're, we're doing our bit for diversity but in effect, they're they're not because, as I say, one face is is the person they they hold up as the person who's representing every person of color in the country. Well, the, I guess the one good thing for comedians and for football, and here's our segue, is you know anybody can have a podcast, as as this is proving, and you know um, there's you know there's lots of comedian podcasts like now. There's lots of comedians doing football podcasts, and you, yeah. you, of course, are you're one of them. But you know, it's like you know, you've got Josh's podcast, and now you've got John and Matt doing the the fantasy football pod. Plus, yeah. you know, we talked about last time. You go back, you know, certainly, you know, in standings, you've got Al, you know, the the Arsenal pod that Alan yeah. does. Yeah, you know, with with all of those guys, and of course, for those of us with long memories, remember you doing your podcast with Mark Chapman, which is now, forgive me for saying, like 10 years ago. Yeah. So, you know, there's a, there's that avenue too, which is well, good. I, you know, when I first did that uh, podcast with Mark Chapman, which was basically an advert for Champions League for, for a, a computer game, essentially, I didn't fully grasp what podcasting was at the time and how popular it was. So it was me, Mark Chapman, uh, referee Graham Pohl, uh, and a lovely chap who worked for the company who's shamefully whose name I can't remember just now. I only spoke to him two days ago. That's terrible. Um, right, and it was, 
Uh, Roy, yeah, Roy Merritt. Yeah, Roy. Yes, thank you, Roy Merritt. Yeah, Roy. Thank you. Very good recall. Uh, it was a lovely chap. He was brilliant, and we very quickly established a kind of sitcom rapport between the four of us. We established our own characteristics, but and I kind of I was kind of aware of what was happening, and lots of people seemed to be listening to it, but I didn't really understand what that entailed. To be perfectly honest, but suddenly, suddenly in, in recent years. Um, being a guest on so many other podcasts and also hosting, especially being a guest on the Palace, the Crystal Palace podcast, five-year plan uh, for so long, and also hosting Price of Football. But I, I'm sure we would have mentioned this before. For me, I think podcasts are, are the best thing that's happened to broadcasting and the media in a in a long time. I think they're the most democratic thing that's happened because anybody who's got access to the equipment can start a podcast and there are so many fascinating podcasts out there and I've met so many people and been directed to so many places that, uh, through podcasting that I, I think it's fantastic and it, you know I think it's fantastic that the, the podcast is something that I have creative control over I decide what I say on the podcast to the extent Kieran and I've got I, I think it's wonderful that you have this community that you have people from all over the world getting involved and I think podcasts I think podcasts are great, and I think they're an ideal way for comics to kind of keep ticking over as well. And the the podcast has become for comedians uh, a little bit what the the autobiography at twenty nine years of age used to be, or more importantly, it's become the annual DVD. It's like comedians at, uh, until seven or eight years ago, comedians around about May or June, their agent would say to them we need we need another dvd for christmas so they would they would go and record a dvd it come out of christmas it would make them a nice little bit of money and then when that market kind of collapsed they said right okay we need a book so they started writing uh, books about their life even though they're only 29 so and then but now comedians turn to podcasts and, and it's it's a it's kind of beneficial to both because audiences will go to a podcast that's hosted by you know, if you're going to something that hosted by Josh Widdicombe with Rob Beckett, you're fairly certain it's going to be funny, you know, because those two have got a, a relationship. You listen to Matt Ford and John Richardson, who both of whom I love dearly and I've done a lot of work with, you know it's going to be funny because their relationship is so bizarre anyway and, it, and they're such different people, but they're both really funny and really talented, plus they love their subjects. And plus also what happens is that comedians are doing podcasts about things that they like. They're not... They're not just putting their name to something. They're taking part in a podcast about, you know, like, for example, Josh's football podcast. It's about the, the generation, the era he grew up loving football the most as a, as, a, as a youngster. It's about 90s football. So comedians are doing podcasts about things they're really enthusiastic about. And nothing, I think nothing is more interesting as a listener than enthusiasm. If you're listening to somebody that you know and you know is funny, and you're getting caught up in their enthusiasm. And then, you know, what, what happens is you start to develop running jokes and similar themes come back, similar guests come back on. They, they will start, you know, the, 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 the rapport will build, the chemistry will build. I think, I think podcasts are great, but they are the, they're the ideal opportunity. And also, I don't fully understand how the finances work, but once you found a way to monetize it, they're making quite a lot of money. There's a lot of comedians who... Were, I wouldn't say were happy during lockdown, but they very they were able to supplement the money they missed by not touring by doing podcasts. Because if you've got 
if you've got 150,000 people downloading your podcast a week, you've got advertisers paying you quite a lot of money to do it. And then if you've got Patreon and all sorts of stuff, it's quite a nice little learner. Uh, but they're also fun to do. And, it, and, it, and one of the reasons I like I'll, I'll, every podcast I'm asked to do, I will do because I really enjoy doing them. And I, and I find them I find them quite liberating. Uh, I find that you can talk about things that even I love live radio. Live radio is my favorite medium. I've got no fear of it. I love doing live radio. But even then, there's always a constant kind of tick, tick, tick in the back of your head about don't say this, you're live, don't be too opinionated, you're live, for God's sake, there's laws, legal, don't mention Prince Andrew, whatever. Whereas on a podcast, of course, you're still subject to broadcasting laws and legal stuff, but on a podcast, you can be more more open and more honest, and you can share opinions that you might perhaps not do so to a national audience, and you can challenge other people's opinions in a way that you might not do so on, on radio or TV. So I think they're great, and I think that... I. I think it's brilliant that they've enabled so many people to to share their. It's like you sharing your your passion and your knowledge of, of British TV and British comedy with the world. It's brilliant. There was you couldn't do that ten years ago. You might have found three other people in your corner of, of the United States who shared your views, and you may occasionally have met them. But now you can share that knowledge with the world. You can share. You know, there's a, there's a couple of chaps who do comedy podcasts. I love doing them because they're just these people are so enthusiastic and they just they're, they're asking you questions that you want to answer. So I think pods are great. The other thing that I think is important with podcasts, too, is you can almost immediately tell on a podcast with a number of people whether or not the chemistry is real or the chemistry is forced. I mean, I mean, you know, you and Kieran, you know, developed you know, a good chemistry, you know, almost right away, despite, you know, you're a stand-up comedian, he's an academic, you know, football team loyalties aside, you know, and the same sort of like, you know, the rapport that you had with Mark when you guys did whistleblowers. Yeah. Again, that's, you know, because that's somebody you've worked with for, you know, years and years now. So it's like a double act in a way on a podcast. Yeah, oddly enough, I didn't, I, I, I knew Mark, Chapman before we did that podcast but I, I didn't know him that well it's just we there was a mutual respect right from the start we knew of each other that, that it, it's the same with Kieran I had no idea who, who Kieran was he knew who I was but I had no idea who Kieran was I subsequently learned very quickly but we just you can't fake that. You can fake that chemistry on a TV show without without a doubt. You can. And Jimmy Carr's brilliant at that, and, and he will know that I mean that as a compliment. Jimmy's brilliant at faking the the welcome. I'm pleased you're here stuff. And a lot of comedians, and and also it's part of the editing process as well. You can fake that bonhomie. You can fake that chemistry. You can't do it on a podcast. It helped with Kieran and I that you you really couldn't get two people more different than Kieran and I you really you know he's he's never had a drink in his life I, I've had way too much drink in my life he's he's but we were very different personalities but we're we're both from South London we're both similar ages we both had reference points in a strange sort of way as as you mentioned we support two teams that are bitter bitter rivals but in a funny sort of way that also helped uh, and it's just we kind of held each other's hands in a, in a metaphorical way when we first started doing the podcast. And we're also united by the fact that both of us thought that the idea for the podcast was a, was a, never going to work. We both 
reluctantly agreed to do it in the first place. We Neither of us could foresee it lasting more than four weeks. So we kind of went into it in that spirit. But also, I love, I, I forget a lot of stuff that I find out, but I love finding stuff out. I generally, even at my age, I think I've got a very inquiring mind. I love being told things. I love learning things. And Kieran, he's a natural educator anyway. That's his job. But some of the things that Kieran was was telling me about were, were fantastic. And of course, he loves comedy as well. So he was getting insight from me. So we just we just hit it off. And I, and I think I'm very proud of what we do in that pod. And I'm very proud of the fact that people at the highest level of football listen to it. And I'm very proud that we seem to have some influence, or certainly Kieran does. But I'm most proud of the fact that people recognise our relationship. They recognise the chemistry between us, the real bond. And in, in a strange sort of way, the pandemic almost helped as well because we did the first couple of shows in a, in a studio environment. In fact, we probably did the first six or seven in the studio environment, which is my natural environment. I'm perfectly at home in a studio. I, I love, in fact, I love being in the studio. Whereas Kieran was slightly, not uneasy, but you know, he's slightly nervous and isn't at home in a studio. So when we ha- were forced to do it from our respective homes, and we also had that kind of siege mentality where we go, like, we're going to get through this regardless but it, it kind of it made the the relationship both more intense and more relaxed and it became probably for six months during lockdown here the first lockdown it, it was a really important thing for me to be able to do you know I, I'm talking to you now in a, in a little office which used to be our garage so it's 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 tiny but it's it's 10 yards away from my kitchen door so twice a week I actually had to leave the house and walk down the garden path and it felt like I was going to work, and that was really important. And then we we kind of felt that we got each other through the pandemic because we had this routine, we had each other to talk to. And so many people, and I'm so proud of this, so many people said to us before, during, and after that we became part of their lockdown routine, that we became part of keeping people sane because they knew that on a Monday morning and a Thursday morning they had an hour of us to listen to, yeah, and a lot of our pod is very informative. It's very important, but a lot of it is two blokes who actually really, really love each other, sort of taking the piss out of each other. And again, that that comes back to what we talked about at the start about why British panel shows don't necessarily work in in America because we get diverted by everything. But we have so many shared points of reference, like, you know, 70s TV, 70s music. We're both old punks. We're both, old, you know, <clears throat> we both love 70s comedy. We get the, the pod went out, that went out uh, this morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. We got completely diverted because Kieran had tweeted that he'd made soup out of Guinness and cheese. So we, we talked about that as much as we talked about football. But our, our audience seem to really like that, and they don't—they don't mind us taking the piss out of each other because they quite clearly know that we genuinely, genuinely adore each other. Well, I think the thing with podcasts, which makes it more like radio than anything else, is certainly if you have long-running shows, you become intimate with the host. The same way that you know, if you listen to the same, you know, I'm this is. You know, I'm sure this is like the way people in in Britain feel like about Terry Wogan, yeah, or or Steve Wright or Danny Baker. You know what I mean? That you know they've been on the radio for so long that you're like a friend. 
Whereas yeah. TV is very cold, you know, TV is cold and very businesslike. Yeah. Whereas podcast, you know, podcasts are like radio. I, I, I think you made a, you make a very good point. I mean, certainly with those three broadcasters you mentioned, uh, one of them uh, is a genuinely delightful bloke. Was a genuinely delightful bloke. Uh, Terry's no longer with us. So Terry was somebody I liked and got on with uh, very well. Was very supportive to me when I was younger. The other, the other two are very, very good broadcasters, but I don't think they ever make people feel. I mean, Terry Wogan had this genuine gift of making each and every person listening to the show thinking that they were the only person that Terry was talking to, which is a, which is a, is a gift when it comes to broadcasting. And I think the fact is as well, what happens on a podcast is after a certain time, especially one like Five Year Plan, the Palace podcast we do, but that, it, it also refers to price of football the show i do with kieran is that after a time you don't have to explain the context of anything uh you're always aware of new listeners but uh, after a time so for example kieran's dog uh, was, was barking yesterday because he'd seen the squirrel so the first couple of times the dog does that on the podcast you obviously have to explain what's happening now people get disappointed if kieran's dog doesn't doesn't bark you know, they, they, so all these little things happen that become part of the fabric of the podcast and you don't have to explain them to people you don't have to say oh what's good this is what's going on you just say to Kieran how's you know how, he calls his wife the baroness you just say how's the baroness you, you don't have to explain and it's the same the reason I love doing the five-year plan podcast the Crystal Palace podcast is that if I'm doing uh, talk sport for example if I'm on the radio and, this, and somebody mentions a particular Crystal Palace player, say Dave Swindlehurst from the 70s and 80s, I then have to explain to the listeners who that player is because the chances are they won't have heard of him. Whereas on the Palace podcast, you don't have to do that explaining. Everyone's heard of him. There are certain things on FYP, uh, on uh, Price Football, you don't have to explain because they've come up before. And I think that really helps the relationship because people, people be, have become really loyal and supportive of their pods. The amount of time people say to you, "You have to listen to this pod." You have to, and people are really passionate about the podcast they they listen to, to the extent that they. I, I think if somebody was to try another football finance podcast, they would find it difficult because our our listeners, I think, would be would be so wouldn't want to listen to it. They'd go, "No, we've got we've got price of football. We listen to that," and that's what happened. People get so so proprietorial about their podcast and again that's a really a really good thing but at the same time I, f I find that people are really uh, open to listening to new podcasts and you know, you've got podcasts about very specific very niche things like one particular crime has its own podcast and but it's still a brilliant listen it's still a really inter interesting entertaining this what happens as well with podcasts the, the other side of it is that if you're not passionate, and you don't have to be a brilliant broadcaster to do a podcast, but if you're not passionate about your subject, if you're not enthusiastic about your subject, people will suss you out quite quickly. People will stop listening because they will say, well, I don't, if, you know, you're not enjoying yourself, so I don't really want to, to go. And also, if, if you're, if a famous person just puts their name to a podcast and does a podcast to make money, people see through that as well. It's like, you know, People listen to podcasts because they they love the enthusiasm. They, you know, Stephen Fryer do a podcast, and people listen to it because he does it brilliantly. He does. He's not just going through the motions. But if you don't do it brilliantly, if you do go through the motions, people will stop listening quite quite quickly. Well, I've always said that uh, 
with like this pod is like it helps that you know that one it's just me so i'm not beholden to anyone else yeah and i don't have any sponsors so it's just me and my computer and whoever i talk to and it's about whatever i want to talk about whether it's football or comedy or comic books or wrestling or television or whatever yeah then i do it that's why you know this podcast is like seven years old and this is like episode 103 <laughs> you know what i mean yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. i i i don't i'm not beholden to a schedule whereas if i was part of a business or if i had a partner that might make it easier because then I would have someone to talk to every week. Yeah. But, you know, when it's just me and I have, again, you know, it took us six months to get this done. Yeah. There was no deadline because it's just me. And I'm like, no, Kevin, we'll do it whenever you have yeah, time. Yeah. It's not that yeah. big a deal. Yeah. It's, and, you, you, sorry, so it's a, the, the sponsor thing is really, is really interesting. So if, for example, I'm doing talks, one of the things on the price of football that we've talked about a lot recently, and it's something that – uh, the, the, uh, the our parliament in this country is is currently investigating. There's an inquiry into it. Is the influence of betting of gambling on on sport on football in particular? Is the amount of money uh, that that comes into the game through gambling sponsors and the amount of players that are problem gamblers? Uh, you know, football is being given free lines of credit. By companies that sponsor football teams, it's a big it's a big subject. Now, if I'm on Talk Sport and I raise that subject, it's going to get shut down very quickly because they have gambling companies that sponsor them. And, and I love Talk Sport; it's it's somewhere I really enjoy uh, talking. It's it's a good place to go. But that that's a subject that won't get discussed. And when you are on Talk Sport, you occasionally hear adverts for newspapers that you disagree with you know the, the sun will advertise on on talk sport for example and that's an issue for a lot of listeners in liverpool because the, the, the sun is a newspaper that's reviled in that city for their shameful coverage of the hillsborough disaster so but i don't blame talk sport because they're a commercial radio station and while gambling is still legal in this company in this country and while tabloid newspapers are still legal of course they're going to take advertising revenue from it on the pod We've been offered sponsors. We've had gambling companies offer to sponsor us for quite large, eye-watering sums of money, and we turned them down because it would compromise our integrity. It would mean we can't possibly talk about those issues on our pod if we're starting it with a, an advert for a gambling company. We don't allow adverts. I, I only recently discovered that we actually have adverts halfway through the show. We don't allow gambling adverts. We, we do have spots. Speaking, we, sorry, speaking of that, I don't know if you were in the loop on this, but, you know, we get American commercials inserted into the show at the, either in the middle or at the beginning and beginning, middle and end. I'm not sure which, but there was either yeah. something that was gambling or quasi gambling. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I tweeted Kieran and I said, did you know about this? And he's like, no, we don't, uh, our deal is they're not supposed to do that. And he's like, I'll make sure that doesn't happen again. Yeah. The, the, the platform guy was actually producer guy. Uh, again, that's another thing about the podcast that producer guy who does actually exist has become this mystical evil millionaire character that we talk about a lot, but uh, he was, he was absolutely furious. That was down to a mistake by the, the platform that we were on at the time. Uh, 
and it, it didn't happen again. We were mortified by it, uh, to be perfectly honest. Um, but again, we can choose. You know, we're at that state. Our, our pod is very popular, so we get a lot of people asking us if they can sponsor it, and we're we're able to say yes and no. But and we can say to someone, that, "No, we don't think that you, that's appropriate." And, and again, that's something that pods can do. And, and I, I think you do. It's always a difficult choice for anyone who's freelance, for anyone who wants to try and make money out of, for want of a better word, a product. Uh, he, 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 in a way, there's always going to be some kind of compromise. But we're at a stage where we're, we're, and we're not in it to make money. We don't make much money out of it, but we make, you know, what we do make out of it is a nice bonus every three months. But we could make a lot more money out of it if we let some of the people who want to sponsor us sponsor us uh so we're able to but if you do your your ways is, is the best way to do it is to remain completely and utterly independent and editorially independent and not have to worry about sponsors saying i'll tell you a classic example i wrote for dave allen as you know one of the finest comics this country ever ever produced uh, and I wrote on his last series, and his, he, he was famous for his work on the BBC in the late 60s and through the 70s and 80s. Uh, and his last series was on ITV. And he, he, he hated it. He didn't particularly want to. He just hated the idea of being on commercial TV. And he hated it even more because what would happen is he would have a routine about driving, for example, or he had a routine about watches that he came up with for that show. And... and ITV said to him, you can't, can you not do that driving routine in this show because we're carrying adverts for theatre or whatever it was during the show and they won't be happy about a routine where you're taking the piss out of out of cars and drivers. And he's like, you you can't stop me from doing it. And that's, that, that's very much an issue. Like I say on TalkSport, it's very much an issue where they're not going to bite the hand that feeds them. TalkSport aren't going to have an in-depth review of the problems of gambling in the football industry when they're sponsored by... A, a gambling company, a betting company. Yeah, it, it's the same with horse racing on 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 TV, on ITV. They've got, a, of course, they've got a very close relationship with gambling companies, so they're very unlikely to investigate the relationship between gambling and horse racing. You know, in fact, you know, horse racing, you could argue, exists purely for betting companies to make to make money. Uh, so it's you're much better off if you're able to to be in a situation where you don't have adverts or sponsors. Of course, there's some communities who don't give a toss. They'll take, they'll let anybody sponsor them if they, they, they really will. They will just take the money and not and not worry about it. Uh, but most people, I think, on podcasts, most people view podcasts as a place where money is isn't isn't the important part of why you do it, and you can pick and choose, and you don't have to compromise your integrity by by having sponsors that perhaps prevent you from talking about things you want to talk about. True. Uh, before we go, we'll do. We'll actually squeeze in some actual real football chat. Great. Uh, how are you finding Patrick Vieira as your new head coach? Do you know what, Mark? It's a really interesting question that one because we've got, I think, to the exact point, we've got the same number of points we've had at this stage of the season in the last two seasons, but yet it feels so different. It feels like. We've been in chains for two years, it, and Roy Hodgson. Roy Hodgson did a fantastic job for us. There's no, there's no denying that. Roy Hodgson kept us up 
but my God, it was painful to watch at times. It really was point by point by tedious point. We were so defensive. We were so negative. It it wasn't a pretty watch. Um, and I'm fairly certain that had we still been in lockdown, if fans weren't back in the grounds, I'm fairly certain that Roy Hodgson would still be our manager. Uh, and I think it's really interesting. I'll be really interested to see what Roy Hodgson does at Watford. But I think Steve Parrish looked at the situation. I think Steve Parrish thought to himself, in fact, I'm fairly certain he did, as I've spoken to people at the club, that fans are going to be enthusiastic about coming back to football. We can't wait to get back into the grounds. But if they're coming back to watch Palace only win three games at home again, if they're coming back to watch Palace try and get a point from the start of every home game, they're going to drift away very quickly. And, and, And I think he was right. And he took an enormous risk. We had a lot of players out of contract. We know Vieira wasn't our his first choice. We know that for a fact. And the first two games didn't look brilliant. And then we were away to West Ham. It was a game I was at. We were one deal down at half time. And Palace came out the second half as a different team. We came out, we were on the front foot. We were enthusiastic. We played 30 yards higher at the pitch. And that's how it's been that's how it's been ever since. We're playing really exciting football. And what's What's, we're not winning every game, but we're giving every team a game, which we didn't do before. We lost, we lost 3-0 to Liverpool two weeks ago, last home game. It was a travesty of a result. It was a shock. The least we deserved was a point. And we played really well against them. It, 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 we beat Man City away from home, not by getting 10 men behind the ball and, and holding on to a lucky goal, but by playing football, by attacking them when we can. It's a whole different attitude. And the, the atmosphere in the ground is is absolutely fantastic now. Uh, by all accounts, he everyone at the club loves him. He's been a he's been a breath. He's the fact that he's a a young black working class manager really fits us as a club. Uh, it, it's it's brilliant with our demographic and where we are, our physical location. The the players are clearly buying into it. We've got a funky new kit. It just everything just seems just seems better. It just seems different. We've all got a little spring in our step. Of course, what that. It makes it more difficult to do the five-year plan Palace podcast because it's much easier doing a football podcast when you've got stuff to moan about than when you've got stuff to be glad about. It's it's much it's much easier to be funny about being shit than it is about being good. But we're actually at a situation now where under Roy Hodgson, and again I've got enormous respect for him, but under Roy Hodgson, there are times it would get to twenty twenty to three in the pub, and you think I don't really, I'm not sure I even want to go. I'm warm and cosy in this pub. And then you go to Sellers Park and we would, like I say, we'd, our home record was poor. We were conceding. The, every, you know, our reputation was as a club that was well-organised and defensive. And we were shipping goals all over the place. And what's lovely now is that for years, the only time we really got any credit from pundits was because of the atmosphere. But now it's brilliant to hear pundits on every football show going, I like watching Palace play football. They're very entertaining. They're trying to play football the right way. So it's at the moment, it's it's fun. And it's been a long time since watching Palace has been has been fun. We still, the Premier League are still, I don't want to be in any other division than Premier League, but there's still issues with with VAR, there are still issues with with refereeing, with the money in the game, with the influence of the top six clubs. But at the moment, I'm really enjoying being a football fan. Other than the fact that you're six points behind Brighton. Well, there is that. We try we try not to talk about Brighton. Look, I I I want I haven't said this to Kieran on air. I've been I've grudgingly said it to him off air. 
Brighton are a, are a good side. They are a good side, to be perfectly honest. And Brighton, dude, they've got a, they score goals so late they keep going right. To the, end. I, the podcast we did after Brighton equalised against us in the ninety seventh minute was a difficult, a difficult pod because you have to get it. Yeah, we we didn't lose the game, but it felt like we'd lost. But Brighton are doing well. They're doing so well. In fact, I was praying that Graham Potter would get the Everton job or the Newcastle job just to just to throw a spanner in their works. But yeah, the, the thing is that Kieran knows, as a Brighton fan, that morally, we are a better team. He knows that we're better people than they are. Full stop. He you know he has to live with that fact, uh, and that's something that consoles me. But yeah, it's, it is. It is slightly annoying. They are they are six points better than off than us. But still, we've still got time to change that round. But you have to try and be mature and say, well, our season isn't defined by whether or not we finish above Brighton. But of course, it would be a massive a massive bonus. To be honest, I'm still at the stage where as long as we're still in the Premier League, then I don't really care how far behind Brighton we are. We, we've we've played them twice this season. We didn't lose, uh, so that's 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 fine. And as far as the pod's concerned. That, actually makes life easier when you can do a podcast after you've drawn rather than one of you having to pretend to be mature and not mentioning the fact that you've beaten them. I think I tweeted before the game started, for Pod Harmony, could we just have a 1-1 draw and shake yeah, hands and be done with it? Yeah, which is what, do you know what? The, when we, we've actually got a good record, but last year when we played them in lockdown, almost exactly a year ago when uh, they battered us, they... they we scored a breakaway goal in the first half where our striker, who's barely played since, did a, a backflip, a back heel that went through the goalkeeper's legs, which was perfect. And then they really, it's one of those games where I think they had 37 chances, like 20 of them on target. We had three. And then the referee was, was about to blow his whistle and we, on the break, we scored. And it was like, I, you know, I couldn't not mention that to Kieran next time we did the pod, but you're quite right. One always sort of the um, the default score, I think, between us. We're we're both good sides. They're, they're probably slightly. It's a terrible word. I don't like using the word project, but you know, Graham Potter's been at Brighton for two seasons more than Patrick, so they're, they're slightly further ahead on their on their plans. But you know, Vieira, it, it's he's he's just great. I mean, it's just it's just a really good time to be a, a Palace fan, and we've got. We've got a team from League Two in the FA Cup that's coming up on on Saturday, and Palace are paying the the travel expenses of this team because it's they're uh, it's as far away from Sellers Park as you can get. They're, they're right up in the northeast by Newcastle. It's quite a deprived area, so Palace made a generous gesture that they're they're paying for the away travel for their fans. Uh, they halved the price of tickets, so it's going to be a sellout because we want to make it a good. Uh, a good occasion for the Hartlepool fans. And I'm aware that I sound like I'm patronising them now, and I am to an extent, but I can't wait to turn up and play a lower league team in the FA Cup, fairly confident in the belief that we'll we'll beat them. So, yeah, and, and also, yeah, we're a, we're a good club at the moment. We're, we're, we're run by decent people who are trying to do their best for the, for the, for the club and for the community. So these are, it's a good time to be uh, a Palace fan. When you've got, you know, c- c- contrast our approach. Man United are playing Middlesbrough in the FA Cup, and Middlesbrough is quite a long way. I, I know in America distances seem uh, uh, 
odd when we when in England we could play them that's maybe a hundred miles away. To you that isn't the case. But Middlesbrough is also in the northeast. It's on the opposite side of the country to Manchester. Uh, the TV company moved the game to Friday night, so Middlesbrough fans have got to travel from Middlesbrough to Manchester uh, for an eight o'clock kickoff on a Friday night. There are no trains from Manchester back to Middlesbrough after nine o'clock, so they they'll either have to stay the night or get coaches. It'll be expensive. And Man United are charging him forty pound for a ticket, which is just wrong, you know. So there's there's that way of doing stuff as a club, and there's Palace's way of doing stuff as a club, which so I'm quite proud of. Of, of us at the moment but yeah the Brighton thing is a bit is a bit annoying actually you're quite right is, it, is, it, is there the same feel I mean I know there are traditionally NFL clubs for example who who don't get on but is there are there are there clubs you can point to NFL clubs where you can say that the fans really genuinely have a rivalry or is, is the fact that you have a franchise system does that work against any notion of actual rivalries and derbies no, there are there are heated rivalries in all of the American sports. Right. Um, the thing that I always compare uh, to English football is not the NFL; it's college football. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Where where things are a lot more things are infinitely more tribal. Right. Especially when you have in-state rivals. Um, the one that I always uh, quote to English people is uh, Alabama and Auburn are okay. both are both in Alabama and they're maybe a hundred or so miles apart. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but their rivalry is so intense. Uh, Alabama famously has a grove of trees yeah. that that they're known for. Well, an Auburn fan went and poisoned them. She really. Wow. So that's the that's the example that I quote and and with like with American soccer now there's a lot of what I like to call um cosplay fans like they yeah, want yeah. to try and emulate British football and especially um the worst rivalry probably is the Red Bulls and well now with with NYNFC because there are very few inner city rivals in American right. sports. Just, I mean, when you tell people that, you know, there are 20 football clubs just in London. Yeah, yeah. And there's, you know, yeah. four four in the Premier League. And, you know, we very well could have six of the 20 next season if Fulham and QPR both get promoted. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, or a third of the league is in one city, which is crazy. Yeah. Because... Because for television and reasons, most of the two city teams in American sports are in different leagues. The Yankees, uh, okay. the Yankees and the Mets are in different leagues. Well, now that we have the early plays, they do play each other every year. But right. like the Cubs and the White Sox are in different leagues. So they used to never play each other except for the rare time they would meet in the World Series. Yeah, Football is a little different, but... Uh, in football, the biggest rivalries are usually between the historic teams that have played each other forever. So, like, like Chicago and Green Bay have been playing, and Detroit have been playing each other since 1920. So uh, that's okay, right, that's yeah. a that's approaching, and the yeah. Yankees, the Yankees and the Red Sox, you know, have been playing each other in that name, you know, since like. 1900 you know i mean yeah. baseball i mean baseball is really the only sport that has 
the length, you know, in hockey to some degree, but baseball is the one that goes to the 19th century. So it's the closest sure. one for, 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 for football culture. But yeah, like the Canadian teams, like Calgary and Edmonton are both in the same province. They hate each other. Right. Toronto and Montreal hate I mean, they're like the big city rivalry. You know, so that's like Liverpool and United. Sure, sure, You know, sure, they're sure. the two big giants. Yeah. But yeah, they're, but, but it's definitely college because there you can get inner city. So, you know, like UCLA and USC are both in Los Angeles. Right. So that, you know, so they have a rivalry. Or, you know, like I went to Indiana. Indiana and Purdue are both in Indiana. That's their rivalry. That's oh, their okay. heated rivalry. You know, yeah, Michigan. So that's the, the close. That's the closest example. There are actually give. in London. There are actually fifteen teams in London and the the suburbs, which is which is too many. It, it's it's ludicrous that a country as small as England has ninety two professional clubs. And there is a there is a time you know, around the eighteen eighties eighteen nineties when there are probably two hundred and forty clubs playing football in England at some level of professional football. So it's. It's ludicrous. And then in, in, in America, you've got so few teams actually playing NFL at the top level in a huge country. And we've got too many teams in a small country, which is why some of our rivalries are so uh, are so bizarre. And tr- traditionally, when I was growing up, it was always used that the local London TV company, we would have our London football show on Sunday. And the guy who presented that is still one of my idols, Brian Moore. He would always say a London club will never win the league because there are too many London derbies. And because because the, the thing is that all London clubs hate each other. That you London clubs will hate some London clubs more than others, like West Ham hate Millwall more than they hate Chelsea, but only slightly more. So all London clubs really want to beat each other. And then oddly, Palace have this rivalry with a club that's fifty-five miles away. And we really, really, really don't get a lot. Millwall, Millwall really, really, really despise us. We played them in the cup a few weeks ago. They're in the league below us, and it was horrible. It was like a throwback. It was like a seventies, one of the worst away days I've had for a long time. It's like going back to the seventies with the atmosphere and the tension and the, the the horrible chance of Millwall fans. But we don't hate them anywhere near as much as they hate us, and that really annoys them. That makes them hate us even more. Because our rivalry is only only to do with Brighton, and it's an it's an odd one because it's it's a very new and specific rivalry. It happened after one particular game in in nineteen seventy six. There was no uh, hatred between the two clubs at all until then, and this one particular game in nineteen seventy six kicked off, and then it just snowballed from there. But they're absolutely our biggest rivals. But even in English football, there was still I guarantee before every Palace Brighton game, at least some members of the media, a newspaper somewhere or a radio station somewhere will get in touch with me to ask me about the Palace-Brighton rivalry. But it, it's a fierce one. But that the odd interrelationship, the internet of rivalries in English football is one of the things that makes it so so interesting, I find. One of the, the thing you mentioned about the rivalry, they used to say that uh, one of the Boston writers used to say this about the Yankees and the Red Sox because up until 2004, when the Red Sox won the World Series, which was their first in like a hundred years, yeah, yeah, they had never beat they could never beat the Yankees in the playoffs to get to the you know to win the World Series. So, one of the Boston writers famously said, you know, when talking about the New York Boston rivalry, he always said, "It's not a rivalry. A hammer and a nail don't have a rivalry." <laughs> That's a very good analogy. It's well, it's interesting. A lot of there are a lot of football people who 
I, I call the Palace Brighton game a derby. Uh, but a lot of people say you can't call it a derby because it's not local, because derby implies is two teams that used to be in the city of Derby in Victorian times hated each other so much, so any local rivalry became, became a derby. But for me, it is a derby because derby is rivalry is different. Derby implies proper local. And what happens, of course, in uh, in English football is you have a lot of English teams, football teams are, are just kind of a sign of the, the rivalry that cities will have. So Southampton and Portsmouth have always hated each other as cities because they're rival dock towns only 30 odd miles apart. But one of them was a, a Royal Navy dock town and one of them was a Merchant Navy dock town. And the Merchant Navy dock town got paid so much more money for making ships. So they were also more wealthy. Newcastle and Sunderland were on different sides in the, in the English Civil War back in the 17th century. So they've always hated each other. So the, 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 the club rivalry for a lot of the time just takes over from an already pre-existing rivalry between two towns and two people. Liverpool, Manchester, again, for example, when the Manchester Ship Canal was built and started taking uh, imports away from, from Liverpool in the 1840s. So a, a fierce economic rivalry started between the two teams. So when Liverpool and Man United came along, that just it, it compounded the area. I need to go soon, Mark. There's one thing you, you yeah. mentioned, the, 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 the writing there, the, the journalist. There's one thing I've, I find... Uh, we've got a lot of really good sports journalists in, in, in this country, a lot of journalists I know and I admire. But I just find American sports journalism, and I can't... I can't define why it feels better, but American sports journalism somehow just does seem better. Sure. I mean, I, it may it may only be because I see the good examples because people point me in the direction of, of a particularly good piece of writing and I don't see the day-to-day stuff. But I always find, I don't know, again, I don't know whether it goes back to the old 70s days when you had such good boxing writers, Norm Mailer writing about Muhammad Ali, etc. But I always find American sports journalism, it's like the same way, the athletic is becoming very popular here, but it's still we we haven't quite got that same culture of of really uh, passionate analysis that, that American sports writers have. Would you? Is there any merit in that argument? Do you think? I agree. I have thoughts on that, and that's something we can explore the next time you have time to come on. Sure. Because because one of the things that I find fascinating about British sports writers on the whole, at least football writers, is that they're allowed to ask that you know who they support usually, which yeah, I think is, yes, I, which, which I think is a plus. And yeah. some people think is a minus, although now we get, now, you know, you get trolled for it, but I think it's generally a good thing. Like I said, uh, before you go, Kevin, I do want to get, since I do have a fair number of English listeners, sure. so I want to, I want to give you the chance to talk about your, your charity concert night that's coming up in a couple of weeks. That's very kind of you. Well, let's hold the American journalism. I promise it will be uh, much quicker next time. I'll, I'll talk to you as soon as you want me to talk to you again. Yeah, with, um, I do this gig every year for uh, the Lilly Foundation. Uh, this will be the 13th year I've organised it. Uh, it's football related. I was approached by Jonathan Pierce, who's one of the Match of the Day commentators. Uh, way back, 13 years ago, his sister-in-law... Liz lost her baby, Lily, at the age of six months to a thing called mitochondrial disease. And at the time, nobody knew anything about mitochondrial disease. And Liz, who's just, 
she hates me saying this. She's a, she's a real inspiration. She's just, she's a she's a, a woman from Croydon with no previous experience in in in, in politics or fundraising. But she just decided that Lily's death wasn't going to be in vain. And we uh, so Jonathan approached me and said, "Can we do? We're setting up this little this charity. See what we can do research wise." Uh, so we did this gig at the comedy store, and it was a great success, and it raised a, a, a few grand. And since then, they've raised, I think, about five and a half million pound now. There, there are now two specialist units, uh, one in Newcastle, one at Great Ormond Street in London, uh, dealing with mitochondrial disease. The life expectancy for children with life, mitochondrial disease is now, it was six to nine months. It's now 12 to 13 years Uh They've had uh, the law changed to allow research uh, into it. And it uh, it's, it's been a remarkable story, but we do, we, we could do a much bigger venue every year, but we, we sell out at the comedy store every year. And rather than try and make more money just out of one gig, it's, it still feels really important and special just to do it. It's like a sort of homecoming every year. And it's a lot of the same people come back to the gig. There's, there's a couple of tickets still available with Monday, the 21st of February. We've got a really good build. You mentioned John Richardson. John Richardson's one of my favorite live comics. He's, he's on, uh, we've got Sean Walsh who's doing it. We've got Simon Evans is doing it. So it's a really, it's a really good, it's a really good bill. Uh, I'm hosting it. Uh, there'll be a couple of surprise guests, hopefully um so th yes thank you for allowing me to mention it but it's it's one of the things that i'm proud uh to be involved with and, and you know again it, it comes back there's a particularly as we've said right from the start and again this is probably something i was quite pleased to see it, it may quite larry david did a video message to someone i forget her name but somebody who won a prize recently who, who had beaten cancer larry david did this very funny video i thought very funny video message where he implied that she was pretending to have cancer so that she could she could win this award there's there's, there's some i always whenever i host a gig every year i always find a new way to imply that the charity are trousering the money i find a new way to say every year that their house is getting bigger and bigger they're all driving bigger cars uh, and yet the audience know that I don't mean it. And they know that I've got a relationship with the charity that means I can take the piss out of them. I wouldn't dream of doing it at a benefit for people I didn't know, but there's just something uniquely kind of British about that. Okay, we're going to do a good thing, but we're going to take the piss out of each other while we do it. Uh, and it's, it's a, it's a strange thing. And they, they don't mean, they, in fact, they would be disappointed if I didn't imply that they were skimming off the profits uh, because everyone knows full well that they're not. Uh, and everyone enjoys, but it, it does seem to me sometimes it's it's that is a uniquely British phenomenon as well. Oh, we've got Sarah Keyworth; she's doing it. She's one that she's brilliant. She's fantastic. So, so yeah, it's a really good bill. So, if anyone wants to come along, there's still one or two tickets left. Then please come down. It'd be lovely to see you. Great. Thanks again, Kevin. We went we went longer than I was planning on, and hopefully, hopefully, uh, it was fine. Do you know what, Mark? I, I thought we'd done about 45 minutes. I've just realised we've done an hour longer than that. So, uh, listen, I, 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 I'm really sorry it took so long uh, to be able to time you down. It wasn't, I, I wish I could say it was all work related. It wasn't, but as you uh, hinted at, there were some family uh, tragedies that went on, uh, unfortunately. But uh, I'm, I'm happy to talk to you anytime. So, let's, let's do it in a couple of weeks rather than a half a year.
Oh, sure. And people can still get your book. Let's not forget about that. Um, uh, yes, the book, uh, we're uh, hoping to, to have news about a Price of Football book soon, which I won't jinx by telling you about. But uh, yes, the book, Who Are You? is still, I'm told, uh, selling well. They won't exactly, they won't tell me exactly how well it's selling, but they just keep saying, oh, no, it's fine. It's doing okay. It's fine. Uh, I might even get paid for it one day. But I'm still, again, people still uh, are getting in touch with me to say how much they enjoy it, especially the fact that uh, every club, I write about the history of every club and the culture of every club. Uh, so there aren't many books that have Morecambe and Accrington and, and South End in. So uh, that was a pleasure to do. But I do have to go now. But yeah, do, do get in touch. We'll do it again soon, hopefully. Okay. Thanks, Kevin. We'll talk All to right, everybody. Mate. And Gene, nice to talk to you. Bye bye now. Bye. Bye. And we'll talk to everybody next time. <laughs> <laughs>